Chapter 8 of The Marrow of Tradition. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Waddell Chestnut. Chapter 8 The Campaign Drags. The campaign for white supremacy was dragging. Carteret had set out, in the columns of the Morning Chronicle, all the reasons why this movement, inaugurated by the three men who had met, six months before, at the office of the Chronicle, should be supported by the white public. Negro citizenship was a grotesque farce. Sambo and Dinah, raised from the kitchen to the cabinet, were a spectacle to make the gods laugh. The laws by which it had been sought to put the Negroes on a level with the whites must be swept away in theory, as they had failed in fact. If it were impossible, without a further education of public opinion, to secure the repeal of the Fifteenth Amendment, it was at least the solemn duty of the State to endeavor, through its own constitution, to escape from the domination of a weak and incompetent electorate, and confined the negro to that inferior condition for which nature had evidently designed him. In spite of the force and intelligence with which Carteret had expressed these and similar views, they had not met the immediate response anticipated. There were thoughtful men, willing to let well enough alone, who saw no necessity for such a movement. They believed that peace, prosperity, and popular education offered a surer remedy for social ills than the reopening of issues supposed to have been settled. There were timid men who shrank from civic strife. There were busy men who had something else to do. There were a few fair men prepared to admit, privately, that a class constituting half to two-thirds of the population were fairly entitled to some representation in the law-making bodies. Perhaps there might have been found somewhere in the state a single white man ready to concede that all men were entitled to equal rights before the law. That there were some white men who had learned little and forgotten nothing goes without saying, for knowledge and wisdom are not impartially distributed among even the most favored race. There were ignorant and vicious negroes, and they had a monopoly of neither ignorance nor crime, for there were prosperous negroes and poverty-stricken whites. Until Carteret and his committee began their baleful campaign, the people of the state were living in peace and harmony. The anti-Negro legislation in more southern states, with large Negro majorities, had awakened scarcely an echo in this state, with a population two-thirds white. Even the triumph of the Fusion Party had not been regarded as a race issue. It remained for Carteret and his friends to discover, with inspiration from whatever supernatural source the discriminating reader may elect, that the darker race, docile by instinct, humbled by training, patiently waiting upon its as yet uncertain destiny, was an incubus, a corpse chained to the body politic, and that the negro vote was a source of danger to the state, no matter how cast or by whom directed. To discuss means for counteracting this apathy, a meeting of the Big Three, as they had begun to designate themselves jocularly, was held at the office of the Morning Chronicle, 
on the next day but one after little Doty's fortunate escape from the knife. It seems, said General Belmont, opening the discussion, as though we had undertaken more than we can carry through. It is clear that we must reckon on opposition, both at home and abroad. If we are to hope for success, we must extend the lines of our campaign. The North, as well as our own people, must be convinced that we have right upon our side. We are conscious of the purity of our motives, but we should avoid even the appearance of evil. McBain was tapping the floor impatiently with his foot during this harangue. I don't see the use, he interrupted, of so much beating about the bush. We may as well be honest about this thing. We are going to put the niggers down because we want to, and think we can. So why waste our time in mere pretense? I'm no hypocrite myself. If I want a thing, I take it, provided I'm strong enough. My dear captain, resumed the general, with biting suavity, your frankness does you credit. An honest man's the noblest work of God. But we cannot carry on politics in these degenerate times without a certain amount of diplomacy. In the good old days, when your father was alive, and perhaps nowadays in the discipline of convicts, direct and simple methods might be safely resorted to. But this is a modern age, and in dealing with so fundamental a right as the suffrage, we must profess a decent regard for the opinions of even that misguided portion of mankind which may not agree with us. This is the age of crowds, and we must have the crowd with us. The captain flushed at the allusion to his father's calling, at which he took more offense than at the mention of his own. He knew perfectly well that these old aristocrats, while reaping the profits of slavery, had despised the instruments by which they were attained, the poor white overseer only less than the black slave. McBain was rich. He lived in Wellington, but he had never been invited to the home of either General Belmont or Major Carteret nor asked to join the club of which they were members. His face, therefore, wore a distinct scowl, and his single eye glowed ominously. He would help these fellows carry the state for white supremacy, and then he would have his innings. He would have more to say than they dreamed, as to who should fill the offices under the New Deal. Men of no better birth or breeding than he had represented southern states in Congress since the war. Why should he not run for governor, representative, whatever he chose? He had money enough to buy out half a dozen of these broken-down aristocrats, and money was all-powerful. You see, Captain, the general went on, looking McBain smilingly and unflinchingly in the eye, we need white immigration. We need northern capital. A good name is better than great riches, and we must prove our cause a righteous one. We must be armed at all points, added Carteret, and prepared for defense as well as for attack. We must make our campaign a national one. For instance, resumed the general, you, Carteret, represent the Associated Press. Through your hands passes all the news of the state. What more powerful medium for the propagation of an idea? The man who would govern a nation by writing its songs was a blathering idiot beside the fellow who can edit its news dispatches. The Negroes are playing into our hands. Every crime that one of them commits is reported by us. With the latitude they have had in this state, 
they are growing more impudent and self-assertive every day a yellow demagogue in new york made a speech only a few days ago in which he deliberately and in cold blood advised negroes to defend themselves to the death when attacked by white people i remember well the time when it was death for a negro to strike a white man it's death now if he strikes the right one interjected mcbain restored to better humor by this mention of a congenial subject the general smiled a fine smile he had heard the story of how mcbain had lost his other eye the local negro paper is quite outspoken too continued the general if not impudent we must keep track of that it may furnish us some good campaign material yes returned carteret we must see to that i threw a copy into the wastebasket this morning without looking at it here it is now end of chapter eight recording by james k white chula vista